0: So, we're officially into the Christmas season today, and um, there is, I found that there's this strange controversy that comes up around Christmas time, one that brings out a lot of very strong emotions when it comes to this whole topic of the Christmas season and when it actually starts. Now, for some of you, the Christmas season starts the moment that Thanksgiving is over. For others, uh, you say, well, no, the, the Christmas season doesn't actually start until December 1st. Maybe for others of you, Christmas and buying presents starts the day after Labor Day. But regardless of where it is that you are on that spectrum, I think it's safe to say today that the Christmas season, we are now in it. And this Christmas season, with this Christmas season, comes a Christmas sermon series that we're kicking off today called Hope Has a Name. Now, uh, I just want to start out this morning with a little bit of interaction from us. Um, Don't worry, this isn't going to be anything too difficult, but what I'm going to do is a little bit of a survey here this morning, and I just want you to kind of raise your hand to these questions, if you would. So the first question is this, how many of you are completely 100% finished with Christmas shopping? Just put your hands up. Wow. All right. Uh, and how many of you are really mad at the people who have their hands up right now? <laughs> alright, another question. How many of you have ever re-gifted a gift at Christmas time before? Now, alright, wow, you guys got your hands up. That was a lot of honesty right there. Oh, you're pointing at some other, somebody else. <laughs> uh, how many of you have maybe re-gifted for somebody who is sitting right in the room, maybe next to you today? <laughs> Uh, It's a little harder to to answer that question, right? A number of years ago, I got a present from somebody at Christmas time. It was back when I was in high school. And I opened it up, and it's a book. And uh, on the inside cover of the book, it had been uh, personally signed, and, and there was a personal note that had been written. I thought, wow, I mean, this is really great, until I started reading it. And it was written to Ben, and my name clearly is not Ben, is it? How many of you are going to spend more online this year than you are in a physical store? And um, how many of you on Black Friday or maybe on Cyber Monday you went to buy something for somebody else and you found that there was a bunch of stuff that you decided to buy for yourself? Yeah? Guilty? Guilty? Okay, last one. How many of you are really, really excited about a gift that you're going to give to someone this year? Just put your hand up. All right. You know, Christmas time is a time when we think about gifts. And the series that we're going to be going through over the next several weeks has to do with the great gift that God gave to us. Comes from that famous prophecy in uh, the Old Testament It's a prophecy about Jesus, and this prophecy is in Isaiah chapter 9. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can grab one of the pew rack in front of you, open that Bible app. But I want to encourage you and invite you to join me in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. And we are going to read about this prophecy that was written about Jesus seven centuries before Jesus was even born. Now, this prophecy actually begins back in Isaiah chapter 7. You can stay in Isaiah chapter 9. um, But I just want to read one verse to kind of give you some context here from Isaiah chapter 7. And this is in verse 14 of Isaiah 7. It says this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. And then... Uh, fast forward to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2 we read this the people who walked in darkness <clears throat> excuse me the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone because of this child in giving this child you have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod for his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now here's how it was broken. For every boot of a trampled warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The first thing about this prophecy that uh, I want you to notice here is that this wasn't, the first, this wasn't given at the first Christmas. This was not a prophecy that was given with the song Jingle Bells. This was a prophecy that was given in a very real, dire, and troublesome situation. The year was 733 B.C., and uh, King Ahaz, he was the king of the southern uh, kingdom of Israel, also known as Judah... And he was very worried because the Assyrian army was threatening to invade their country. Now, to kind of give you a little view of this, we got a map with with, uh, this that we're going to put up on the screen so that you can kind of see what was happening. But uh, Assyria, they're the country up there in the north. Israel and then Judah are highlighted in green in the south. King Ahaz is the king of Judah. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what alliances that he should form, what political strategies he should pursue after. And so God sends this prophet Isaiah to him and says, Ahaz, don't worry. Don't make any alliances with any other nations. God himself is going to take care of you. God himself is going to protect you. Well evidently Isaiah can see that Ahaz is a little bit worried that there is this deep anxiety all over his face even after he says this and and so Isaiah says in order to prove that you that to prove to you that God is going to protect you I'm going to send you I'm going to give you a sign here Now you may think that Ahaz would be really excited about getting this sign In fact, um, if I came to you today and you were really worried about your future, you're really concerned about something that's going on in your life. And you said, and I said to you, I said, guess what? I'm going to give you a sign in order to prove that you have nothing to worry about. And I kind of clap my hands. And in that moment, $1,000 is sitting on the table right in front of you. Now, if that happened, I would imagine that you would be very encouraged that God had given you a sign that he was going to take care of you. And so you would think that Ahaz would be really excited about this sign. But instead, Ahaz says, you know what? I don't want a sign. Because evidently, he understood that if God had given him a sign, he was going to have to follow God. He was going to have to obey God. And he really didn't want to do that. So Isaiah says, wow, I mean, it sounds kind of strange that you don't want a sign because you're going to then be obligated to obey God. But guess what? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And again, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, we read this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky, uh, because when you read in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9, and Even in other Old Testament prophecies, this is true as well. But specifically here in this text, Isaiah 7 through 9, uh, we see that there is a partial fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah's day. That there is a son who is born, who was a sign. He is referenced, he is referred to in chapter 8 of Isaiah. But but as we are reading here, and if you read the context here, what, what you begin to understand is that this child that Isaiah is talking about is not just this child that is uh, talked about in Isaiah chapter 9, but there is a future child that's going to be coming as well. Because the names that are attached to this child are totally inappropriate for a mere human child. Names like Mighty God, Everlasting Father. You would never say that about another human being. There was a temporary fulfillment that took place in Isaiah's day But ultimately, this prophecy would be fulfilled 700 years later by Jesus. That Jesus is the Son, born of a virgin, who would be the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Like I said before, a lot of biblical prophecy works this way, where there is an immediate fulfillment in the prophet's day, and then there is an ultimate fulfillment that is going to come later on in the future. In fact, you might think of it this way. Uh, The next picture that we're going to put up on the screen might help you a little bit here. But if you're looking at, if you were to look at a mountain range and you look at it from the distance, you might look at this mountain range and you see that these mountains seem to be all beside each other, really, really close. Or maybe it's just one mountain here. But but if you actually get up close to these mountains, what you find, or if you fly over them, you, you can find that there are these huge gaps separating these mountains. That from a distance, they just look like one mountain or maybe this one mountain range. But, but when you get up close to them, they're, they're very further, much further apart than what they seem from a distance. Well, a lot of prophecy works this way as well, that there is a temporary fulfillment. Then when you get up close to it and you see the details, you realize that there is a temporary fulfillment, but then there is an ultimate fulfillment. That's what's going on here in Isaiah, that there is a temporary fulfillment in Isaiah's day. And then there is an ultimate fulfillment that's going to take place seven centuries later in the birth of Jesus Christ. But now the question becomes, well, how does this prophecy about the birth of a Messiah who isn't going to come for another 700 years ultimately answer this problem that Ahaz and Israel are having here in Isaiah chapter 9? Because in that moment there is this enemy army that is outside of Jerusalem and seeking to destroy it. I mean, here's this enemy army surrounding Jerusalem. They are the biggest, baddest enemy army of their day. The Israelites are freaking out. And God responds through Isaiah by promising that he's going to send a Messiah, that he's going to send a rescuer. But the rescuer is not going to come for another 700 years. Some people read this and they think, Well, you know what, that's the problem with the whole Bible. It doesn't really address real people in real situations with real problems. And I think that a lot of times at Christmas time, that's how we could feel. You know, that uh, often people might say, you know what, I like all of the quaint stories about Jesus in the manger. I like the shepherds and I like the sheep. Uh, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I mean, those are really nice things to say. But what, what does that have to do with a real problem in a real situation? I mean, I don't have a job right now or my marriage is falling apart or I, I can't get rid of this chronic pain. And while this quaint little story about Jesus and the manger might seem kind of heartwarming, they really don't have anything practical to do with my life. I like the Hallmark movie version of life, but it really just isn't all that realistic. Maybe that's you and how you're feeling today. Maybe you're not all that excited about Christmas because it doesn't seem like it's all that practical in your life right now, today. Well, that, that was the same question that these people were asking in Ahaz's day. They were faced with a real enemy army that was getting ready to destroy them. And the question was, what does this promise of a future Messiah really have to do with us anyway? Well, the birth of Jesus is going to address their problem in two ways, and these are very important. First, uh, in sending Jesus, God was dealing with our problem at its root. And you see, our problem and their problem was much deeper than an enemy army that was coming against them. Our problem is much deeper than the health concerns and the health issues that we have, the relational conflicts, the economic needs. The root of all of all of the problems is this separation from God. And all of our earthly problems ultimately come back to the issue of separation from God and our sin. What I'm saying is that that God could have taken away all of these other problems, but if He didn't deal with the problem of the separation from Him, and if He didn't deal with the problem that our sin had created, then there would just be a whole new set of problems that would come up in our lives. One of his writings, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings... He would say this, he says, evil is like a shape shifter, that it's like a shadow that just moves and shifts. He says, after you repel it, it just changes its shape and it begins to grow again and it comes at you in a little bit different way. For example, you think about all the technology advances that we have made over the last few years. All of the different things that have taken place, I think particularly of of something like a phone. And the kinds of phones that we used to have 10 years ago, a flip phone, something like this, right? And and these phones were great. And and yet now we have these phones where you open them up, where you just hold them up to your face, and they recognize your face, and they turn on. Now, in many ways, smartphones uh, have have kind of transformed our lives. They've made our lives even better. That in, in many ways, we are more secure now than we were 10 years ago. That because now, I, I can actually go on my phone and I can look at my bank account and see what kind of things are going on in my bank account. I can monitor my home or, or you can monitor your home security system from your phone far away from home. You can uh, open your door, you can unlock your door, you can lock your door, you can turn your lights on and turn them off from your smartphone long way away from home. And so in some ways, we are more secure now than we have ever been. But in other ways, we are more vulnerable to things like cyber attacks and identity theft. In some ways, we are more connected to our family and friends than we have ever been because there are things like social media that we can connect on. But in other ways, we are more disconnected from our family and friends than we have ever been. Because you can be sitting in the same house, in the same room, with your family And you can be on Instagram or Snapchat and getting jealous of somebody else's family and the family time that they're having all the while, while you're ignoring your own family that's sitting right there in front of you. In fact, if I were to ask you if phones have been more positive or more negative as it relates to these things, you would probably have a very difficult time answering that question. The reason why I bring this up is because despite all of the technological advances that are made, despite all of the improvements, Things really haven't become all that much better. And that's because the source of darkness resides within our hearts and not within our technology. Because technology cannot change the human heart. All the technology can do is to create new shapes for the shadows of darkness. And so if sin is going to be dealt with, then it has to be dealt with at the root Which is why God, in the midst of offering this help to Ahaz, promises a Messiah who would save us from our sins, who would not just deliver us from our enemies. He promised a Messiah that would transform our hearts and not just get rid of the things that are irritating us. We cry out for deliverance and to be delivered from bad health. God wants to deliver us from the curse of bad health that causes bad health. We cry out for being delivered from injustice and broken relationships. But God wants to deliver us from sin and selfishness that breaks those relationships. We cry out for victory in battle. But God promised a Messiah who would come and take away the hatred that drives us into battle. And so when God sent his son Jesus into this world, he came as a baby on a mission to redeem the world so that those who trust in him might be saved. That Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we were condemned to die. So that he could break the power of the curse of sin in our lives. And that's the first way that this promised Messiah addresses the problem. But there's a second way as well. And the second way is this. This promise spoken into this situation addresses this problem by the the four relational names that the messiah would bring to us from god about god four relational names that totally change how we relate to god over the next several weeks we are going to look at these names but we're going to look at just the first one on the list here this morning again isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Wonderful Counselor is describing someone who is beyond understanding, someone who is too wonderful for words. What Isaiah is telling us here is that when when the Messiah comes, he is going to be beyond our words to describe him. He is the Wonderful Counselor. He is wonderful, he is glorious, he is magnificent, awesome. He is more awesome than any words that we might use to describe awesome. He is the wonderful counselor. He's the one who advises, uh, who instructs us, who guides us through problems of life. When, when, When he does that, and here's the key, he does that from a position of authority. You might think of someone like King Solomon here. The word counselor is used for Solomon in the Bible. That people brought their problems to Solomon, that he had the wisdom in order to understand their problems. He had the power in order to provide a solution for their problems. Don't think about that counselor that, that, that you kind of, as the person who you kind of call up late at night and just pour your heart out to, and they say, oh yeah, you know, that's really bad, that really stinks, I don't like that person either. That's not the kind of counselor that we're talking about here. We are talking about the kind of counselor that you can bring your worst problems to and they can actually find a way out. They can show you a way out. And Isaiah says, one day a Messiah will be given to you and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this idea. He explains to us why Jesus can be called the Wonderful Counselor. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we read this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is not just this sovereign king who's going to rule over us, but he is a brother who lived among us and who experienced the very same things that we have experienced. Which means that he can be reliable to guide us even in the worst kinds of pain, even in the worst kinds of circumstances of life. Over the last several weeks, um, or over the next several weeks rather, as you Kind of read the Christmas story as you think about and reflect on the Christmas story. I don't want you to just quickly pass over just how poor Jesus was when he was born. He was born into the worst kind of poverty. In fact, the Jews, as a people, they they were very oppressed by the Romans who were ruling over them at the time. On top of that, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, seemed to be poor even from a Jewish perspective. I mean, Jesus was born in a stable. Which means that Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, could not afford a hotel room for the night when his wife was going to give birth. I know we have these cute little manger scenes that look so quaint, that look so precious with all of the animals around them. But I assure you that there is nothing comfortable and sentimental that was taking place on that first night. There is no woman who wants to give birth out in the cold... In a smelly barn around a bunch of animals. They, they did not have the smell of uh, cinnamon and nutmeg and uh, pine cones around the manger scene that first Christmas. Another clue that shows us a little bit about how Jesus was born into poor and humble circumstances is something that happens eight days after his birth. On the eighth day, they go to the temple in order to offer a sacrifice, which was something that was required uh, by, because you had given birth to a firstborn son. And the requirement was to offer a lamb. Mary and Joseph, they offer a pigeon and a dove, which means that uh, that, that was something that, that was a, an exception that was made for you if you were extremely poor and couldn't afford a lamb. It wasn't just at his birth that he was experiencing these things, but throughout his life, Jesus was very poor. He was condemned by man, men to the point of death on the cross. He was rejected. And why? Well, it was because he was bearing the rejection and the condemnation and the poverty that we deserved. And So that when we come to him with our problems, we can come with confidence. Knowing that God will not judge us or condemn us, because Jesus was condemned in our place. In fact, Isaiah says this about Jesus in uh, chapter 53 and verses four and five. He says, "Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows; yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace." And with his wounds, we are healed. That that when we come to God, we we don't get the poverty and the judgment that our sins deserve. But we get the blessing of fellowship and the sonship that his grace provides. Because our condemnation was placed upon him at the cross. This verse in Hebrews reminds us that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Because our sin has been dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's something more. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that we, we, can, that, that we come because uh, he can sympathize with us. You see, you can know that there is literally nothing that you will ever go through. No poverty, no uh, rejection, no pain, no condemnation, no temptation that he himself has not experienced. And now he can guide us through this because he has walked the same path that we are walking. As you think about that, aren't you glad that you don't serve a God who just simply rules over pain, but a God who actually walks through that pain, who can sympathize and understand understand what you're going through, and then can guide you through this. He's the wonderful counselor. Some of you, if you're honest this morning, you say, well, you know what? I'm in a a situation right now where I'm facing a real need in life. Well, the good news is, is that Jesus is here to help. That he is the most wonderful counselor. And what I love about this name so much is that Jesus came for people who have problems. You know, we read through the Gospels and... I think what's really cool about the Gospels is that every, all of these miracles that Jesus did, every one of these miracles that Jesus did started out with a problem in somebody's life. I don't think that there was ever a miracle that Jesus did where he just did it for the fun of it. He always started out with a problem like hunger or disease or death. He entered into that problem and he used his miraculous power in order to transform it. The good news is that about that the good news about this truth is that today if you have a problem you are a good candidate for a miracle in your life but i think that too often we just want to make sure that everything's fine in life too often we just want to make sure we got it all under control and when we live that way when we live as if we have it all under control we are not going to experience the power of god at work in our lives jesus came for people with problems he came for people whose lives were dysfunctional people whose lives were messed up and jesus says i I didn't come for the righteous i came for the unhealthy i came for the sinner i came for the sick i came for people as the wonderful counselor and so if you have a problem today that name was given specifically for you now one of the things that I think uh, would be helpful for us, that I think it would be good for us to spend some time on this morning, is this question. Well, how should we approach the Wonderful Counselor? How should we approach this Wonderful Counselor? Jesus kind of gives us some ground rules for, for, for uh, how to approach the Wonderful Counselor in the Gospels. And I want to just look at a few interactions that he had in the Gospels. And I think that these things, that we need to keep these things in mind as we ourselves approach the Wonderful Counselor. So number one, you've got problems. Well, you need to be completely honest with him about your problems. If you want help with your problems from the Wonderful Counselor, you have got to be completely honest with him. In fact, every counselor will tell you, at least every counselor that I know, will tell you that until you are completely honest about your problems, they're not going to be able to help you in any way. You see, there is this tendency to kind of keep the truth about our problems hidden, even from the counselor. And maybe that's because we feel that it's, we're too ashamed to admit the full extent of our issues, that we don't want to acknowledge these things, maybe even to ourselves. But until we have fully, become fully open and fully honest about the problem, we can't get any help. Here's why that's true. Getting help from Jesus is not like taking your dirty car to a car wash and throwing the keys to a young guy and, and saying, Hey, why don't you just go take this thing and clean it up for me? I'm going to go run some errands down the street at, at the store. No. No. Getting help from Jesus with your problems is him walking you through your, uh, how you're supposed to change. You're, you're going to have to get active. You're going to have to be involved in the details of this change. And so if you're not honest about the details of your problems, you're never going to get any fixing from this. Until you acknowledge that your marriage has a cancer in it, until you acknowledge and admit that there is an issue at work, until you acknowledge that there is a problem in your family or in this relationship, you're never really going to be able to get any help from Jesus because you're not going to deal with the right problem, the right issue. The problem is not everybody else's annoying attitude around you. The problem is not their selfishness or their pride. There is a problem in you that you need to deal with, and until you're honest about those things, you're not going to see any real change take place in you. Now, the the challenge in being completely honest with him is that when the full extent of our problem is revealed, the question then that we often ask is, well, what if God and everyone else just walks away from me? I mean, what, what if they see me for who I really am? What, what if God and all the other people see the ugly truth in me? And what if they just walk away? Well, you see, that's where you're going to have to trust the promise of the wonderful counselor. Jesus was once talking to a woman in John chapter 4 who was really messed up. She's the woman at the well. She had a string of broken marriages, five to be exact. Jesus is talking to her, and in the midst of, while he's talking to her, she's in the midst of an adulterous relationship in that moment. Well, she keeps trying to hide all of her problems, because she doesn't want Jesus to know the full extent of what's really going on, because she thinks that if Jesus knows, he's just going to walk away from her. So finally, Jesus interrupts her, and he says, you know, I know. I know about your five husbands, I know that the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband. I know that you're unhappy. I know that that before, I, I knew all of these things before I even started having a conversation with you. And I still pursued after you anyway. You need to understand that Jesus already knows everything about you. And yet, He is still pursuing after you even though you are messed up. In fact, He has come after you because you are messed up. That God wants to transform your life. There is nothing about your problems in life that is going to surprise him. There is nothing that his blood cannot or has not already covered. And so it is time to be completely honest with him and to experience the help that we so desperately need. Number two, we have to want to change. We have to want to be healed. John chapter 5, Jesus comes to this lame man and he's been paralyzed for 38 years. He asks him what many people think is one of the most bizarre questions in all of the Gospels. Jesus comes to this guy who's lame for 38 years and he says to him, do you really want to be healed? Now, you think about that and you think, well, of course this guy wants to be healed, right? But here's what I think Jesus is getting at. There are many people who want to experience the benefits of healing, but don't want to go through the painful choices that come along and deal with the painful choices that come along with healing. In other words, we want God to clean up the mess in our lives without dealing with the choices and the patterns that got us into the mess in the first place. Often, we like the concept of change, but we don't really want the hard work of change. And so my question is, do you really want God to change your life? Do you really want God to form you into the person that he wants you to be? Do you really want him to transform your life? Because if so, then it's going to require some things that you're going to have to deal with. Let me tell you, Jesus can heal you. He really can. But do you want him to? Which leads me to the third point here in this. And that is, you have to do whatever it is that he says. You have to do whatever he says. And As I read through the Gospels, one of the things that kind of stands out to me is how often Jesus asks people uh, to do some really crazy things, uh, people who want to be healed. I, I mean, you see this again and again in the Gospels, people, Jesus telling people that they need to do crazy things if they want to, want to experience his healing. See this again in, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 9. John chapter 9, there's this blind man and he wants to be healed by Jesus. And so Jesus comes up to this blind man. And you might expect that Jesus would just kind of touch his eyes and say, boom, be healed. But instead, he does not do that. He spits on the ground. He starts making these little mud pies. He picks up the mud. He starts rubbing it together, puts it on the guy's eyes, which in any other context would have been deeply insulting. And then Jesus tells this guy to walk. Not just across the street, but he asks him, he tells him, you need to walk across town to the pool of Siloam. And when this guy gets there, he's supposed to take the water and he's supposed to wash the mud off of his eyes and he'll be healed. Why? Why not just snap his fingers and make it happen? Or Peter... You know, Peter comes to Jesus and he has this financial need and and Jesus says well I want you to go down to the lake I want you to catch a fish when you catch that fish you open its mouth and there's going to be a gold coin inside that, the mouth of that fish it is going to be the exact amount that you have that you need for your financial need I mean it's a great story but why didn't Jesus just kind of pull that coin right out of his pocket well why, why didn't he just snap his fingers and it appear out of thin air There's only one explanation that I can come up with this for why Jesus asked these people to do these crazy things. And that Jesus is demonstrating to us that sometimes obedience is not going to make any sense at all to us. And so he says, forgive. And you say, well, if I forgive this person, who's going to take care of me? Who's going to be looking out for me then? He says, well, I need you to end that relationship. And you say, well, if I end that relationship, then I'm going to just be all alone. I can't be all alone. Tells you to give sacrificially. You say, well, if I give sacrificially, then how am I going to be able to afford things? He tells you to make a move. But you say, you know what? I'm so comfortable where I'm at right now. I don't want to move. And in that moment, you have to decide whether you truly trust Jesus enough to do what it is that he actually says he tells you to do. Often we want to control things ourselves and there are certain areas in our lives that we kind of keep and, and we hide from him. and we, we, we tell God this is off limits to you. But When we live that way we will never experience the help of the wonderful counselor. Jesus wants to give you all of himself. He wants to give you all of heaven. He wants to give you all of God but he'll only do that in response to your full surrender to him. So, as we approach the wonderful counselor, there are three questions that are being asked of us. Are you ready and willing to be completely honest with him? Do you really want to be healed? And then, are you ready to do whatever it is that he asks of you? You know, as we draw our time to a close here this morning, I want to ask Linda and Tracy to come and prepare to lead us in a closing hymn. And as they're coming, I I just have one final thought about this name, the Wonderful Counselor. And particularly as it relates to this word wonderful and what this word wonderful applies to. Wonderful does not apply to the name that Isaiah gives for the solutions that the counselor gives. Wonderful is the name that Isaiah gives for the counselor himself. I, I think that what's so amazing about this is that this counselor Does not promise to take away all of our problems and to change all of our circumstances in life. But the wonderful counselor promises that he's always going to be with us. And the presence of the wonderful counselor is more valuable than any of the solutions to our problems in life. In Christ, we can live every day assured that the wonderful counselor is our good shepherd. Because he is the good shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in quiet waters. The wonderful counselor makes me, uh, uh, leads me beside quiet waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The wonderful counselor, he restores my soul. Yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to be afraid of evil because the wonderful counselor stands right there with me. His rod and his wonderful staff, they comfort me. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Wonderful Counselor forever and ever. And so my question for you this morning is this. Do you know? Do you really know the Wonderful Counselor? Because he wants to have a personal relationship with you. Bring your burdens to him. Lay them at at his feet. Watch how the wonderful counselor transforms your life.